Oh, okay. Um, so actually it was when I was a sophomore in high school, we had an open-ended research paper project and I just happened to be in the school library browsing through the aisles and trying to figure out what would interest me to write like a 20 page paper about. And I saw a book on Pompeii. And so I just ended up getting really invested and in learning about it and like all the details. Um, and loved it. Like, I think my paper even went over by like seven more pages than what was required because I was just so into it. And then I ended up going to Italy. Basically, I want like I specifically wanted to see Pompeii, um, was just like enamored with it. I was like I had one of those audio tours, tour guide things. And I was just um, so immersed in what I was thinking about and what I was hearing and, and then being there you know, in the site that like I hit my head like on an arch even because I was just like in my head about it. Um, so yeah, so I got really involved with with archaeology there, but I actually didn't go to grad school right away. I did AmeriCorps. I did like, uh, I got like I had a circuitous path to end up going back to grad school and doing archaeology. But that that obviously resonated with me because that's what I ended up returning to despite first being a journalism major. Wow. Uh yeah. I, that is so fascinating, and I think that it really that really resonates with me too because um, I've taken quite a circuitous path through archaeology, as has Kirsten. So one of the things that keeps coming up, at least on Go Dig a Hole, is how there's there are so many trajectories through archaeology and so many ways to do it because it intersects with literally everything. But yeah. uh, it all of the trajectories are nonlinear. Like you can take, it's kind of like choose your own adventure. Like you can get through it <laughs> any way you possibly can. Uh, right. So welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I've got Kirsten back in the uh, Stream PDX Airstream studio here in Portland. <laughs> welcome back. Uh, it's awesome to have you as the uh, now more often than not co-host. Uh, <laughs> and uh, on the show today, we've got Valerie Aquino. Uh, she's a PhD candidate at University of New Mexico and also an organizer for the March for Science. Valerie, welcome to Go Dig a Hole. Hi, uh, Chris and Kirsten. Thanks so much for inviting me and having me on your show. Yeah, it's good to have you. So uh, you and I had met at the Chalk Mool Conference, I think it was last uh, October or November. Last November, yeah. In, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it was, it was good meeting you then. It's good having you back on the show. Uh, so let's get a little bit of a background. Um, you, had, you had mentioned uh, as we were chatting that you work on the Maya and geoarchaeology. And uh, so what are you working on there? Right. So I draw concepts from ecology and complexity science that basically starts out with the premise that, um, quote, human beings are just another unique species. So that is like, yeah, we are special living things with the ability to reflect on ourselves and develop these complex social constructs like religious institutions and nation states. And you know, humans were extremely adept at like making and using tools. So I start out with this premise that we are special as human beings because of our cognition, but also recognizing that we're animals that have evolved and adapted to our environments and specific circumstances like other species. 
And like other species, not only does the natural environment impact our short-term behaviors and long-term developments, but we also have the ability to influence the natural environment around us, right? Like we create niches. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just as an example, think about cattle grazing and how certain plants are preferred and how many cattle and where they're grazing would affect like plant distributions in that area. And then I think about people and how we've really embraced that ability to engineer our own environments. Um, so specifically, we've developed agriculture. So we can grow and harvest what we want to eat instead of you know, foraging for it. We've made plants that never existed in the ancient past because we've manipulated them so much. Um, people have created cities and each city is built of materials we had to obtain from somewhere. And then each city affects local resource distributions. Mm-hmm. So borrowing from an ecological framework, um, my theoretical basis is that humans are embedded in a socio-natural landscape meaning we've made our own cultural and social environments with our permanent settlements, our complex social institutions, and those social landscapes can't help but affect natural landscapes, which in turn, you know, affect us kind of right back in the dialectic. So my broad question asks how various components among earth and human social systems interact with and influence each other. And in my case study, um, which I work in the, in the ancient Maya, uh, ancient Maya time period, I ask what role did climate change play in the development, maintenance, and erosion of the dominant and widespread political tradition of the classic period Maya world. And by classic period, I mean a time between approximately 200 to 900 AD. And by climate change, um, I help reconstruct and analyze both rainfall droughts and variability from one set interval of time to another And then I use and compare records from sites all over the ancient Maya world, but my dissertation site where I focused on reconstructing detailed cultural and paleoclimate records is a place we call Ushbenka, which is located in present day Southern Belize. So um, is is my answer too long? (laughs) I'm gonna wrap it up, I'm gonna wrap it up. No, 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 don't, no pressure to wrap it up. It's, it's, uh, you're going at at like a really impressive clip and there's, I'm amazed. No, 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 that's probably the most succinct answer anybody has ever offered for the way that uh, the Maya had a human environment interaction. So, uh, yeah. Thank you. Matt impressed. <laughs> well, my elevator pitch, you it's, know. It's yeah, going I, well. I can, it's going well. Yeah. I can send it up even more. If I had, like, literally the time in an elevator with someone and they asked me what to do, I, I usually just end up saying I dig things up and date things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Depends but, on how large the building is, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, I will wrap it up a little bit here. So for my dissertation research, I reconstructed um, architectural sequences of the civic ceremonial or quote-unquote downtown precinct of Ushbenka to examine discrete building events that formalized, developed, maintained, and remodeled the space in that core and estimate the pace and nature of those building campaigns as proxies for political contraction and expansion. And then um, I've also directly dated human remains from associated tombs at that site that I've hypothesized um, held dynastic lineage and done some preliminary stable isotope studies on the same bones to get a picture of individual diet and how those changed over time. 
and then supplementing that data with exit data using the site stele or carved stone monuments, which you could consider permanent political billboards of the ancient Maya world, as well as artifact analyses from my great colleagues. And then lastly, in addition to the archaeological excavations, I've been on a team that's been conducting paleoclimate reconstructions using speleothems or mineralized cave deposits, which can offer robust terrestrial paleoclimate archives. And then through those cumulative efforts and various lines of evidence, I hope to contribute original insights into the articulations among political ideology, socio-political systems, and the natural environment. Oh, you're busy. <laughs> <laughs> I was, and then, you know, the last year and a half, I, you know, I sort of really took took a big step back because suddenly my whole world is science advocacy and public engagement, which is like a whole new skill set for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those things you realize um, as you're doing these studies, and especially ones that seem so broad and far reaching with the implications to the environment and humanity and how we interact with our world, how important it is for science education to be successful, <laughs> to be able to to speak across the spectrum of political mindset of uh all of the above and with everything that's been going on it's kind of like you know i definitely remember the the whole process of that year of 2016 <laughs> which has like this feel of like oh it can't be that bad oh you know i have faith in humanity and at the end you're going Whoa. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a lot of work to do. So it's right. definitely the work that you do for March in Science is very important. And I can imagine even on just a personal and professional level, having your work that you put all of your time and energy into being taken seriously and actually having making a contribution to society at large. At least that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, thanks for, for saying that. Absolutely. Like, even before the March for Science um, happened, I was hoping that my research could contribute to, you know, contemporary discussions and, like, modern worries about climate change and social change and mm. what can we do about it and, and offer some insight there. And absolutely, you know, a lot of the things that were being said in our highest levels of government and as far as, you know, climate change denialism, uh, really worried me, not just personally, as far as like my professional prospects with being taken seriously and with funding and getting a job in that kind of climate, um, but just what that meant as far as consequences to, you know, our communities, to the country, to the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It also makes me think, um, and, and it kind of circles back around to some of the things you said when we were first talking about how you got into archaeology and and how everything is nonlinear. <clears throat> There's also the the question like what is archaeology, and that's such a difficult question to answer because it's kind of everything. And <laughs> the work that you do and the work that Kirsten does too, um, here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, it, it it blends kind of everything from the environment to the climate, uh, you know, the paleo environments. And then to the very, very complex ways that humans interact with each other and with their environments, it literally intersects with kind of every discipline 
of the sciences. Um, And so I think that's Mm -hmm. one of those things where um, as archaeologists become more and more focused on being public facing, um, that is that is the thing that kind of needs to be conveyed the most is that it's kind of like really if you're into anything, you can kind of do archaeology. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. It's all about the the viewpoint, the perspective, I think. Right, like whatever your interests are, there's an entrance um, into archaeology to pursue that. Exactly. Yeah. Align yourself with a general archaeologist in, from any of the sciences, and you got you got yourself a, a project, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Kirsten, you had touched on something um, that I think is pretty salient to uh, kind of the current setting that archaeology um, lives and works in. And that's something mm-hmm. that uh, we explored the last time we were on the show together. And it's something, it's been a recurring theme, I think, since um, the current administration took over in the United States, is just been like, um, why is archaeology important? And um, why are we defending it so vigorously? Um, so uh, in the last episode, just to quickly recap, um, we went over the laws that that make archaeology um, that require it to be done in the United States, and and also kind of why why um, it matters to development and settlement in in you know the current fight for housing. But to expand it to the broader picture, I, I think to what you study with with what you're doing in grad school and and what Valerie studies um, as well is there's kind of this recurring theme throughout all of human history. Like Valerie, you had mentioned our ability to really exploit uh, niche creation and to affect our environment in ways that we can still study now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I, I think that that is the, the amazing thing about um, kind of where we are now in terms of the just profound impacts that humans have had over the sum total of human history on this planet. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I guess to segue to direct action, um, we're, uh, we brought you on to, to talk about the, the March for Science. So uh, the March for Science has taken place uh, April 14th um, across the country, and um, most major cities are, are hosting some kind of March for Science event. Uh, here in Portland, Oregon, there's one happening at Pioneer Square Court or Pioneer Courthouse Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great. Yeah. Um, so, how did you get into March for Science? So it's been a long trajectory. If I think about the deci- uh, the decision making process that got me to postpone my PhD graduation and go all into doing it. Um, so, in the course of my graduate career, I was beginning to feel more and more disenchanted with the perceived and real barriers and silos among scientific communities, the general public, and policymaking. And I saw myself and colleagues keep producing knowledge, but mostly are only sharing it with each other versus for public consumption. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw a lack of activating that knowledge in public and civic spaces and discourse. So I was kind of frustrated with this phenomenon that I would see play out in various spaces where science as a way of learning about the world was compartmentalized from science in practice. And um, I just kind of like how I put it in a TEDx talk I gave last month. So I'm going to, or not last month, but last um, fall. 
So I'm going to kind of repeat this analogy that I'd given then, which is uh, imagine process as your cookbook and practice is making the recipes and serving the food and everyone wants a good dinner. And if our goal is to serve as many people as possible with a meal that nourishes them, we'd be thinking about what recipes are appropriate, what ingredients we need, who is doing the cooking, is there enough food and who hasn't eaten. So when we approach or treat the enterprise of science as just one thing or another, when we have this like amazing cookbook, but you can't serve food or you don't manage to feed people well, then we restrict it from meeting its full potential of serving our communities better. And I really believe that like democracy, the doing of science shouldn't be a spectator sport. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum, divorced from people and society. And especially the application of science to policy um, has a lot of consequences for everybody. Um, And all of that stuff lies squarely in the social realm. Mm -hmm. And only some are in positions to institutionally practice and apply science at all. And we know that there are issues and inequalities that exist there. And then on top of that, hardly any scientists are in political leadership positions to help determine when and how science is applied in policies that would affect every single one of us. Um, so, so those were some of the, the, the kind of chronic things that I was dealing with. And then more acutely, there were, there were several things that had happened. Um, you know, after the last presidential election, there was a federal hiring freeze. There was an immigration ban affecting many scientists around the world. Um, an anthropogenic climate change denialist appointed to head the EPA, um, well, and the presidency. Climate science data were removed from publicly available and publicly publicly funded government websites, Mm. um, a vaccine denialist chaired a vaccine safety review panel. A bill was introduced to eliminate the EPA entirely. The U.S. federal government pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, right, on and on. And I think personally, too, I I think I put my foot down when when we were asked not to believe our own eyeballs when two photos of vastly different inauguration crowd sizes were displayed side by side. And I was like, I don't know, (laughs) this is a bridge too far. We've gone beyond the theoretical. This is like... This is like now. (laughs) We live so squarely within cognitive dissonance every single day to such a breathtaking scale that Mm -hmm. it's like it doesn't even hurt my brain anymore. I'm just kind of like... No, yeah, we can't numb ourselves. Yeah, no, totally. That makes sense in kind of the upside down world we live in. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) And... um. And then lastly, I just I wanted to to mention that, you know, and I don't want to be here, you know, just championing science is like this monolithic thing um, because science is a tool um, and it isn't inherently good or bad mm-hmm. and we can use it in good and bad ways. And so when I see people using science as a tool to harm others by either calling climate change a hoax uh-huh. or deliberately silencing scientific research or scientists or appropriate terminology or you know by cherry picking results to such an extent that that it just undermines the integrity of the enterprise itself and oh that's the potential of science to improve our lives which is yeah. all the stuff we saw happening last year and, yeah. and before that um so i see those as as direct threats right to to our communities and to a functioning healthy democracy Absolutely. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's just uh, there. there's kind of no neutral position anymore. It, it's either, um, you know, you're in it or you're enabling it. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, scientific evidence and integrity, they don't stand up for themselves, right? It needs people to stand up for it. So we've got to get, if we care about our work, we care about getting it right and having it communicated right and applied mm. in a way that is relevant to people and helps them, then like we have to put ourselves out there. It's not going to speak for itself. Yeah. Very well said. So um, I guess let's get a brief history of, of how the March for Science came about. So it, it, the first one was... was um, what last year right this is the second one right yes yeah. so last it actually all started out in, in late january 2017 all online on social mm -hmm. media its first home was on reddit and there was like a throwaway comment that someone had written that said um it was this was on the back of the women's march it was like wildly yeah. um successful as far as how many people showed up the breadth of it around the world uh, the coverage it got it really inspired a lot of people and so somebody on reddit said um someone should someone should start a scientist's march and then this guy named jonathan saw that comment and thought like well technically he was someone so he started a website and then you know uh, asked for volunteers and then they started trickling in. I saw the call for volunteers randomly because I was on my laptop on a like a weekend night, um, just also wringing my hands, trying to figure out what I could do. Um, and then I applied to be a volunteer. I became a Facebook administrator. <laughs> and then um, within a week, there were like 50,000 people who were asking to volunteer and one and a half wow. million people combined on, you know, just Twitter and Facebook. That's impressive. Um, yeah. It just went viral. Right. Yeah. And so I almost feel a little bit like, you know, we didn't do any of the work that lots of other movements, you know, in decades before us, before all this technology made this so available mm. and so easily, you know, could become easily viral. viral. Um, we didn't really like lay these foundations down, which was one of the biggest challenges we faced was because then we had um, lots and lots of voices and lots and lots of people which was amazing but then how do you pull that all together into like what do you stand for what is your mission what are your principles what are your goals and so there was a lot of that happening on the fly as we were organizing a march <laughs> yeah nice um and so uh i guess to fast forward to oh, oh sorry um and then and yeah. then you know obviously i went beyond being a facebook administrator so um, after about, I don't know, five or six days, um, there were two co-chairs. So in addition to Jonathan, who's a postdoc at UT San Antonio, he studies the mo molecular origins of hypertension. He asked um, another person named Caroline Weinberg, who's actually the March for Science um, executive director currently. And she is a, a non-practicing MD and a science communicator from New York City. So those two original co-chairs interviewed me and, and a handful of other people looked at our CVs, asked us a bunch of questions, and then asked me to be their third and fellow co-chair. Um, and then I, I only had one question when they asked me, like, what, do you have any questions for us? And I said, yes, um, is this going to be long-term? Because I'm not in this for a parade or a one-off. I knew that if I were to take on this task, that it was going to mean that postponing my graduation, um, mm -hmm. not getting a bunch of projects done. And I was willing to do that. 
but I wasn't going to do it for one day. And, and so they're like, yes. And then that's when I went all in, lost 15 pounds, um, <laughs> learned a lot of lessons, <laughs> drank from mul multiple fire hoses at the same time. Um, I learned a lot and yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, what has changed in the past year for you? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that. Um, Wow, so much. Like on one hand, I feel a little bit like I'd been in a rabbit hole for many months um, as far as just being so dug into um, trying to figure this out and, and help organize both digitally and in person here locally in Albuquerque um, and helping, you know, just figure out a lot of things, build infrastructure. Um, and so a lot of it's been like these rabbit hole kind of logistics. And then overall, I do feel as if I've made a pivot, whether or not I, I want to admit it. <laughs> um, I do feel internally that I've pivoted from such like a like a heavy handed goal of pursuing like a research one, like TT job, tenure track mm -hmm. position um, and and staying in, in academia and having that kind of career and lifestyle to pivoting more toward these public engagement um, campaigns and work. Nice. Very nice. Uh, and so I guess on the broader picture, the March for Science has also changed a lot in the last year. It's it seems, you know, at least from the outside perspective and, and uh, it'll it'll be neat to hear your your side from the inside. Uh, from the outside perspective, it looks like it's gained a lot of mainstream support and um, kind of uh, professionalism and, and legitimacy. <clears throat> and I know that um, starting off in the beginning, there were some complaints about it, and, and some of them were, were brought to me and, and brought to the show um, about a year ago about the uh, some of the shortcomings in terms of, of diversity and inclusion. And it, mm -hmm. it looks to me like um, March for Science has really taken all of all of that to task to make diversity and inclusion one of its main principles um, in there. And then also... You know, just just in terms of its um, public engagement, it seems to, you know, really be a full fledged, um, you know, kind of uplifting, positive, and like very very public facing uh, movement. So, what what's it looked like for you being more directly involved? Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, there were um, definitely a lot of things that we learned last year. We made a lot of mistakes, and and we learned a lot of lessons. And personally, every day I, I labor to try to align our values with our practice. And that's just kind of never ending intentional work because we do struggle with a lot of um, institutionally systemic issues. Mm. Um, and we have such a big tent and people come from all different backgrounds and different experiences and different opinions. And so it's just constant daily labor um, to make sure that we're reflecting and executing on our values um, in practice. Um, so thank you for saying that you've seen improvements and progress. Um, there's quite a number of us working very hard to make sure that that it's getting more and more aligned. Yeah. Do you see this as uh, this whole discussion that Chris just mentioned um, as really kind of bringing to the forefront for scientists as a whole, not just within the March of Science organization, but sort of bringing these issues to light and to like 
these are systemic issues that no one seems to want to talk about. Have you seen people try to address those um, outside of the organization at all um, from your perspective? Or had people uh, approached you on on how to go about such things? Yeah, you know, I, I always want to see more change. I'm kind of an impatient person. Yeah. Um, so when people ask me that, I'm like, oh, it's never, you know, it's never not. It's never as much as I'd like to see. And I always have to remind myself that a lot of this work is um, slow going because we can't suddenly, you know, like overhaul um, so much things that have been entrenched like overnight. Um, yeah. And there, there is a group that's doing a lot of um, actively focusing more on diversity and inclusion issues, like 500 women scientists, which are growing and they've got pods all over. Um, within March for Science, one of we have a secret Facebook group, secret, quote unquote secret. It has like 800,000 members in it. Um, <laughs> it's a well-kept secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and within that space, we've got um, some lead moderators and lead administrators who do so much of the, of the hard work of um, communicating and getting people to discuss some of these um, hard, sensitive issues in a way that's respectful, mm -hmm. where people um, feel productive about it and feel safe to share within that space. And that has been a really um, deliberate and intentional and long process through these months of um, trying to mold and shape that space to be more constructive mm. to 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 have these discussions. Awesome. Very cool. Thanks. <laughs> well, I, I will let them know they, they're the, the moderators, and I should say other names. Um, so Clayton Carroll is uh, the lead administrator who's been doing a lot of work on that, and Angela Carpio, um, who's also been doing a lot of work adminning and modding that space. Yeah, that's one of those issues that's been sort of hovering and is a, a larger systemic issue in academia you know as a greater institution but science generally as well um that's hard to to beat you know and and that i think is where and this is just my own personal theory um but i think some of those larger systemic issues like other um, social systemic issues that have bubbled up over the last year or two. Um, I think this is one of those that has not so much caused, but has is where some of the anti-intellectualist movement that's been going on really kind of stems from. Are these systemic problems that were hard to identify by the general public? Uh, like, you know, p minorities and uh, not being able to identify or see themselves in, in represented in uh, doctors, scientists, um, academic professorates um, and other larger institutional um, structures. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's almost more closely identified in the entertainment business like the movie stuff like everyone can see that because it's very visible like it's an institution that's heavy and it puts itself out there but I think that institution really reflects some of these other ones that while aren't eas as easily seen hold the same types of institutional problems um, and I think 
it's really nice to see that you know people taking action and um, organizing such pieces like the March for Science are really starting to address and make people face the music as far as like, this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I'm glad you said, yeah, representation in science. Because one of the, my personal goals uh, in this was to help overturn that stereotype of what a scientist looks like, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I think is detrimental to, to, to science, not just to women or to minorities. Yeah. Um, because, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there, there's kind of a stereotype of what a scientist looks like. So locally here in Albuquerque, something that I'd started working on is a collaboration with Humans of New Mexico to have a photo series featuring underrepresented local scientists as nice. part of a humanizing campaign. Yeah. yeah cool. to, to show the spectrum of scientists and to highlight local work that um, aren't publicly visible or accessible. Yeah. Um, and then one of the things I wanted to mention about, um, you know, as far as your earlier question, Chris, the the Me Too, like the Time's Up movements, I haven't really quite seen as much traction in academia um, in that in that as I'd like. Yeah, I know that there has been a little bit, but it's I, I think that it's it's great that you say that it's not as much as you'd like, because um, there's definitely a lot more work that could be done there. Yeah. Um, and there, I think that there was a lot of movement around the safe 13 study that happened in, in 2013. Um, and that's been a, a persisting, uh, area of, of high visibility, but, uh, I don't know. I, I don't think a whole lot of, of, of structural change to the institutions has, has really come about. And I think that. Uh, when we look at what the, um, what would you call them, the, the professional uh, associations and societies, like even Society for American Archaeology, I'm sorry, I'm going to put them on blast right now. Um, right. Their guiding principles really pay lip service to um, defending, you know, attacks against women and, and, you know, all of the issues that come about from there. And, and I don't see it really producing a, a tangible change, even no. from me as, as a white male. Like I still observe um, eat at conferences, even like white men, um, you know, just not changing their behavior. And, and it's mm -hmm. it's yeah. uh, it's not good. It's detrimental to the entire field. And, and like Kirsten said earlier, uh, that's the kind of thing that if the public sees that that is just one more point against um, the scientists. And, and that feeds this kind of anti-intellectualism rhetoric that is really dominating um, the current political and social landscape right now. Yeah, it's tough because um, even in the rare instances that I've seen some kind of punishment needed out for perpetrators of um, sexual harassment or sexual discrimination, which is rare. Academia yeah. does seem to do as much as possible to hide the problem from view. I yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is a bit like a child closing their eyes and pretending others can't see them. But everybody <laughs> else like, knows that they're there. Yes. But you're the only one who's pretending it's not there. Um, one, one specific kind of concrete, I guess, progress that I've seen in the last couple of months was that AGU, the American Geophysical Union, is the largest um, society for Earth and Planetary Scientists, 
they decided to formally adopt this resolution and added sexual harassment as a factor in their grant reviews, um, which I just was surprised shouldn't wasn't already given right (laughs) um and you know and other societies have been hesitant to adopt that um the agu has done it and i hope to see you know others taking their lead and 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 then continuing to to apply more more action yeah yeah and i think one of the the challenges to archaeology specifically uh, when it comes to these types of things is we don't have a governing body to revoke anything there's no mm. real way to be like, you did a bad thing. Now you're going to s- see the consequences of that. Um, and there's multiple ways that that's seen. And, and there have been, I was involved um, in one of the first discussions, uh, the forums at SAA on sexual harassment, packed room, standing room only, or sitting on the, you know, in the hall, the, the walkways. Um, and it's where that sort of last principle or most recently added principle from the SAA. But yeah, it has no teeth. And that yeah. is mm-hmm. just, and that was the biggest complaint about it. But at the same time, it's kind of brought out the reality that the SAA is not a governing body. Right. They do not want to be. Right. And mm-hmm. so that's where it's like, okay, we don't have, I mean, that's the closest thing. Yeah. There's, you know, the, uh, the eight, Oh, um, RPA yeah. is the next, like, they wanted sort of to be. <laughs> yeah. But there's no requirement to have an RPA certification as a practicing archaeologist. It's kind of more like in your region, how many uh-huh. people actually have it, and how is it looked upon from contractors that are hiring you. Yeah. That is the only thing. And if people get an accusation, they can drop the RPA designation and not have to deal with it because those things are reported to RPA. So that's where there is a big shortcoming. And I know some sciences do have governing bodies like medical, obviously. Um, But there are many like archaeology that don't. And so it's hard to to govern that um, when, say, you're the closest thing to a governing body you might have is an academic institution, which not all practicing scientists are within an academic institution. Actually, most are not. And then even if you're accused there, you can just go somewhere else. Right. So -hmm. that's where um, there's a lot of challenges I see with some of this. um, uh, What's the word? Um, Like holding people to their behaviors. and I think that's kind of a product of where our society is at right now um, on a employment level <laughs> as well. <laughs> like unions are less of a thing. That's where you would usually get a oh, lot yeah. of like repercussions. That's what the word I was looking for um, earlier. But <laughs> like people seeing like the results of what like you know reaping what they sow right you don't you don't people don't have to deal with the thing that they've done all the time anymore and that's that's a challenge yeah like i do hear stories of (coughs) people getting blacklisted from um certain parts of archaeology but it's not across the board right so it's one of those things where where it's like 
where exactly is the count the accountability mm -hmm. um you know I, I mean like lawyers can be disbarred yeah so i just mm -hmm. adjusted my my headphones and now I, I feel like i've been probably shouting into my <laughs> no you sound okay <laughs> You're fine. uh uh so like lawyers can get disbarred uh doctors can get disbarred um, right. Uh, you know, even but no one takes your PhD away because you sexually abuse somebody. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and even like plumbers and carpenters can get their their certification and their license, their bond. Yeah, yeah, their licenses and their bonded craftsman um, certifications taken away, um, which makes it incredibly difficult to work um, and to mm -hmm. to gain that back. But where does that happen in archaeology? And so, you know, like you had mentioned, Kirsten, we often see, you know, if you if you work around the country enough, you kind of see this shell game of yeah. people who have gotten busted in some area that just shifted out into, you know, some area where they can get away with their shenanigans. That's terrible. That's terrible yeah. to hear. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> it's very much like <sighs> it's a each region has sort of their tight knit social network and people will tell stories of who to hire, who not to, to hire. Which is, you know, a, sort of a self-contained management of right. your employees or prospective <clears throat> employees because a lot of archaeology is tempire. Yeah. So, but then you have people who can then, yeah, move to a different region where there's less communication between the different right. employers and stuff. And so that's where you run into issues, um, you know, especially with the temp pro employment problems. You know, I've, I've known um women to decide not to work in the field anymore or decide to work more in the lab because they don't want to encounter a particular person that they've worked with um under multiple different companies that you know they can report them to hr for that particular company but that doesn't mean that they won't have to work with them somewhere else so that's one and of then, the oh yeah the you know the challenges um I guess that brought to mind as well, I think about how difficult it is to report when you're an undergrad or grad student, yes. um, say as yeah. as archaeologists, you've got the added dimension of field experiences, field schools, often in remote places where it's even harder to make that kind of behavior visible yeah. to others. And then because of the way that, um, you know, academia works, um, which is also very networked. So when people depend on on their supervisors or their colleagues for letters of recommendation mm -hmm. for their dissertation research guidance and graduation for grant reviews, um, et cetera, we're incentivized not to report right. because you need those people to get to the next thing. Yeah. And it's pretty destructive. It is. And I, I think that all of this highlights, you know, it, it, it got me thinking about this about the March for Science, but all of this highlights kind of the lack of an organizational body. Like you had brought up, Kirsten, you know, like our RPA uh, can't really enforce. Uh, SAA is not a governing body. Um, neither is ACRA. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and there have been attempts to unionize in CRM archaeology that have been brutally busted that yeah. actually ruin people's careers. And, um, it's one of those things where where I look to what's currently happening with the teachers union strikes that are now cascading across the the you know kind of upper mid south midwest area, uh, you know started in West Virginia 
and now Kentucky is looking like it's going to follow quite uh, quite closely behind. Um, you know, teachers have it's illegal for teachers to unionize and it's illegal for teachers to strike, huh. but they're still doing it. Yeah, yeah, like they went outside <laughs> of the system and they got shit done in West Virginia. Exactly. Um, they got stuff done in West Virginia. Yeah. And so you look to March for Science, and what I think is amazing about March for Science is uh, maybe maybe I'm not exactly accurate, or maybe this is too much of a broad brushstroke, but in the sciences, you kind of have to compete against people to to get grants, to get your publications done, and also for jobs. You know, like there there are a very very finite number of jobs in the mm-hmm. sciences, and so for the March for Science to kind of go across all disciplines of the sciences and take people who live and breathe um, every single day, like you have, Valerie, like losing 15 pounds out of stress and not eating, (laughs) uh, to to organize together over a common goal, that is amazing. And I think that there are a lot of lessons to learn in archaeology and in the other sciences about the power of collective organizing around a common goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the most positive outcomes of doing the March for Science um, personally was seeing a new community of science advocates being activated um, to to have a shared vision and to, um, to work together towards shared goals. And when we did the survey of the DC March attendees last year, it showed that an overwhelming majority of the respondents were first time marchers. Mm. And so that showed me that people were compelled to take action to get out of their comfort zones more than they had felt before. And so there are people, you know, new people now organizing for science writ large for science justice around the world, having meetings, building coalitions, putting on events, and those activities have cascading consequences. And so I think that's been the most positive thing that um, I took from the experience. That is amazing. So I guess to switch to, you know, kind of why we all do it. Um, the current administration, like you had mentioned earlier, Valerie, there are there's just a laundry list of um, threats and attacks on science. So the the threats are like, what might come down the pipeline and and then the real attacks like it's just been breathtakingly terrible uh the the <laughs> the reduction yeah i don't to, even know like, i can't, I can't <laughs> the, it's so bad yeah the reductions to national monuments um it's probably easier to say the good things that have happened <laughs> than it is, it is. <sighs> I, I try and put the bad things out of my mind as much as I can, uh, just because it gets me through the day. And there, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic, and and I keep coming back around to that because it's like that. That's all I have. To, <laughs> but, <laughs> it's created all this action. I mean, it's really motivated people to be more involved. I think, whereas before you had it sort of a symptom of complacency. Absolutely, I think the silver lining to the terribleness is, um, yeah, is seeing all of these people get activated and, mm-hmm. and get out of their comfort zones and, and more engaged for sure. I mean, the March last year, it made history. Yeah. So that was pretty amazing um, to have participated in something that was the largest um, event for, for science, for science advocacy ever. There were more than 1 million people in, in all seven continents 
um, over 600 locations to come out and say, hey, science is important to us. It should be important to you. It's relevant to society. This is why. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, yeah, that was that was great. (laughs) That's awesome. And so I think one of one of the things that's, uh, you know, kind of bringing all of this together is we we had mentioned attacks on women um, in in the sciences and attacks on science from the administration. But what are some of the the other issues facing women in science? Like like you you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, women taking lab positions or even even avoiding professional positions because of some some of the barriers. What are what are some of the issues facing women in science and what are the ways that kind of collective organizing, either through social media, through March for Science at, or just, you know, a, mm-hmm. even a larger structure could work around that? Oh, that's a really hard question. It's a good one. <laughs> um, one of the just this week. So um, I don't know. It, it will still be have been recent. Um, just this week, uh, the. Uh, essay um, publication American Antiquity put out the results a paper uh, from a task force on women and grants Um, so professional PhDs that are out there in the workforce um, that work in academia aren't applying for senior level grants. They're not applying for Wenner-Gren or NSF at the same rate that men are. It's not that they're not being approved anymore. They are. It's just that the applications are below what they were, what they are for um, PhD um, improvement grants and those types of things. So there was a study done by a task force over the last several years. um, And this... I kind of went through the paper a little bit again before I came in, but not to any extensive detail. So I would definitely recommend going through that. It is free and publicly available um, through I the publisher now is what Cambridge, I think um, press. So one of the things that came out of this is that it's not a simple problem. So there's a couple of things um, that were notable to me from the study was that a lot of women who go into academia um, are not well represented at research institutions. Either they're not applying or not being hired at large research institutions to the same proportion that men are. Um, and so you don't have the incentive necessarily or the reason to get large research grants such as Wenner-Gren or NSF for large amounts, a lump sum sort of thing. Um, a lot of women end up doing what's called scaffolding, which is kind of like piecemeal putting together smaller grants to toward a larger project. Huh. And um, there's a lot of women that end up going to more teaching positions at such like community college or smaller institutions instead of those larger research institutions. So I again, I haven't this part I don't believe is in the paper, but my own hypothesis might be an attention to quality of life. Um, And that's not necessarily 
true, but the way that I would personally approach such things might be if I have gone through undergrad, grad school, PhD, I'm in my early to mid 30s, and if I want to have a family, I can't be at an intensive research institution if I, if I want the time for that. I mean, you can, but there is, I think, also this either thought or experience-led um, association with like really high pressure, fast work, time sensitive. And inflexibility too. And inflexibility with these larger research institutions. You know, you can only push back your, um, your tenure meeting for so long, like you maybe once or twice. If you decide to have kids that takes away from your time, you know, doing research because you're expected to put in what's that, you know, somewhere around 70 to 90 hours a week. It's not a normal 40 hour work week. Yeah. So <laughs> for people that want to work full time and still have a life, it's kind of like, well, what are my choices here? Um, so that's, that's a little bit of my own hypothesis. Um, again, I haven't read that section of the paper very, uh, attentively. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I do think that there's a little bit of that. Um, I think that may move a little bit with, uh, over, over time, over the next 10 or 15 years, um, with the growing number of stay at home dads and, um, sort of in some ways, a greater share of the, the home life work because uh, mm -hmm. that's a big thing I mean part of this is you know I have I'm in grad school I went back to do my undergrad later um, and I have a teenager so like knowing what all of that takes I can't imagine trying to have a, a small child like mm -hmm. a baby right now doing my oh, oh thank you <laughs> I know women who do it and I'm like oh bless your heart like, I, I admire your ability to oh, stay your focused. your capacity for suffering. Uh, so, your capacity for suffering. I'm just, and it's one of those things that people do. I mean, I, I do know that is a common, or I don't know, maybe not common, but it's not uncommon for women to have children during their graduate studies or PhD. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I did a lot of that work before I went back to school. I waited until mine was in school to go back. Um, and so now doing my graduate studies, she's a teenager. Um, and it's it's still kind of challenging in that, you know, keeping up with, with her homework as well as my own studies and work and constant, you know, interruptions. But having like a tiny, tiny person would be very different. Um, <laughs> so I know that that is an issue um, that has come up in discussion with some people occasionally. Um, but there's others. I mean, not all women choose to have kids. And so there's no reason why of the women who go into science to assume that most of them are going to have kids. That was an assumption made in the 50s and 60s in the excuse of not hiring academic professors who are women or even women going into their PhDs, um, which can be common in some parts of the world. Um, so it's, it's, I think, sort of reinforcing um, as far as social media outreach and uh, general public knowledge um, to help some of this. I think one of the things that can be done is just bringing out like, you know, 
you can do this. Like, yeah, you know, it's it's not don't let I hate saying this, but it seems so appropriate right now. The man beat you down. <laughs> <laughs> so you have, you know, a, a great opportunities. Go ahead and apply for them all. See what floats to the top. That seems, you know, the greatest. But also don't let things like this pressure you to go into something more stressful than you think you're ready for. And so that's those are some things um, that I would take away or try and um, educate or share with, you know, women who are going into post-PhD life. Um, and there's a broad spectrum of people who have previous work experience and field experience, people who have just been academia and continue on in that. Um, in that it's, you know, kids, if you choose to go that route, are great and they're ever flexible. Um, don't be afraid to ask people for help. <clears throat> You know, there's a reason why the saying, like, it takes a village, you know, it's it you cannot and do not try to do it by yourself entirely because it's you will at some point, probably at least once collapse in a heap of exhaustion and stress. <laughs> so <laughs> um, not that that won't happen anyway, but like it's one of those things that, you know, take your time, realize you have time Um if you want to have kids or if you don't want to have kids, both choices are plenty legitimate. If people keep pressuring you or asking you if you're going to have kids, tell you to, tell them to, you know, go, I don't know, eat a chicken. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, it's if that's something that you really don't want to do and you really just want to focus on your career, go for it. Don't feel like you can't or that there's too much pressure in different, um, you know, parts of your life for other things or or ha make the decision of well maybe I might want to have kids. Um, it don't feel like you have to sacrifice yourself or your potential ch future children or current children for either your career or other people. I mean, kind of follow what feels right, but also make sure to ask for what you deserve. Even if you don't think you deserve it, go for those big grants. Why not? I mean, <laughs> you might as well. I mean, that's the, I personally got as a master's student an NSF grant, which people tend to be surprised about but it was like kind That's of a, great. why not? Yeah. <laughs> and if you know people who have won these grants that you've gone after, ask them, like, just just force them to be your mentor, mm. essentially. And, and just ask them to coach you how to win that grant. Like, what worked for them? What are things that won't work Yeah. for that grant? Stuff like that. Be because, you know, chances are you know someone who has worked on, like, an NSF or NEH grant something like that, even though there have been just dramatic cuts to NSF and NEH grants uh, under this current administration, they're still being given out. So, you know, reach out and just be like, all right, it, it's a little harder now, so coach me. Yes. And um, especially with NSF in particular, John Yellen, the coordinator for archaeology specifically, but I'm sure this is the same with other uh, fields as well in the sciences is you they're open like they're they have positions like they're there to coordinate with you as an applicant yeah you know don't be afraid to call them if you're at a conference 
you know, and you see them say, hey, I had a question. Do you have time? Can we make a meeting? Any of that. I mean, that's what their job is, is to help applicants make these applications. And they really like to see people succeed. So um, one of the things I know that uh, it didn't come out of this particular study, but has been in previous studies, is that women are less likely to go out for a drink to meet because that's sort of the traditional like meeting place Um, or approach either someone in that sort of position or an upper in a social manner to have a business discussion. Women are less likely to do that than men. And that is a social cultural thing that has slowly been changing. Um, And that's where um, for myself, as a first-generation non-traditional student, I did a lot of sales when I was younger. So that is where I have a tendency to, I don't want to say excel necessarily, but I have, for better or worse, the habit of being fairly social with anyone. Because I'm like, yeah, we're all human. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> You're in charge of this, right? Cool, I want to talk to you. Like, I have... And it's, it's taken some learning, but I, I, for a long time, just had very little awareness of the pecking order that exists in academia, which drives me nuts because I don't live in that sort of stratified world. Like, in my mind, we all live and die, you know, cradle to grave in on this earth. You know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to really kind of step into those structures in a quote-unquote proper way or what might be expected. So that's where it's like, you know, step outside of your boundaries. If you're feeling intimidated, be like, you know, it's here's a chance for me to step out of my comfort zone, which was definitely something that the March for Science really taught a lot of scientists to start with. Yes. If you went to any of those marches, or or any of the one, (laughs) and are going to, like, go to this next one and use that, as a stepping stone to really kind of push yourself into those uncomfortable moments where you can um, branch out and do do larger things that you may not have thought that you could do. Yeah. I'm glad you guys brought up mentors um, because I think that's also really helpful advice for underrepresented people in the sciences as mm-hmm. far as guidance and support systems. And a lot of people have found spaces um, and support online, Twitter communities like Black and STEM. Yeah. Um, so definitely seeking out mentors, mentors early and and help and identifying the right ones that <laughs> yeah. will really care about you and nurture you and be able to share um, similar experiences um, mm-hmm. with you. And I also wanted to bring up uh, Mantles. Uh, the other day, I, I the other week, I posted this Brigham Young poster. It was women who love math, like a uh, meeting with like free pizza. The Women Who Love Math poster was, it showed four white men on the poster and was like, come to this meeting, Women Who Love Math. It was almost a little creepy. (laughs) Yes. And then, um, (laughs) no, I don't want to go to your (laughs) poor dude pizza party. (laughs) Much less at Brigham Young. (laughs) Um, Sorry. And then then I think, you know, a part of the problem is that, not with that one specifically is that um but another kind of problem is that lots of times people will use you know kind of the rolodex like who do they know mm-hmm. and who do who do they feel comfortable with as far as networking and and 
giving opportunities or amplifying things. And so there's been databases that have been specifically created that compile lists of, you know, scientists, researchers, experts, like women scientists, researchers, and experts. Um, so that you, if you don't know where to turn, you don't know somebody in a specific field to come as like a keynote or to be on your panel, um, there are databases out there and you can get out of your, you know, kind of your Rolodex. And like lastly, in especially in academia, women do more of the invisible labor, mm-hmm. like mentoring, <laughs> um, community engagement, and public outreach. And those are not nearly prioritized um, as highly as other factors. And I want to know why, because that's the kind of work that builds the scientific community and builds trust in the scientific community and engages with the public, who oftentimes are the mm-hmm. ones who fund research. So I think formalized incentives or rewards for that kind of invisible work um, are needed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I My def- strongest mentors and allies have all been women. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I definitely agree with the formalizing recognition and awards for that invisible work, because that's something that you see, like, cannot constantly <laughs> like <laughs> sorry to interject here but i uh-huh. just got a little dingy on my phone i have like 12 percent left just, oh, okay. just fyi okay <laughs> no worries we're about done yeah so um anyway the, the invisible work is definitely a huge problem and i i mean like you're saying with mentorship in academia you have in uh, specifically in archaeology women do a lot of lab work and reporting and stuff like that unless field work in a lot of cases unless Um, first authoring of papers exactly exactly so there's there's just so much that really needs to be um changed yes um but i think the smaller tweaks are the best way rather than like broad sweeping changes are hard for people to swallow so if you if you tweak things and do a lot of them and have a lot of shorter term goals like this year i want this this and this within my institution next year i want to do this this and this within both my institution and my broader community um and and trying to really just kind of make those happen one step at a time I definitely think it could be a, a two-pronged attack because, yes, mm-hmm. there, there are these real concrete recommendations out there to start doing, um, you know, short-term or not short-term, but more immediate, more immediate things that we can implement. And then at the same time, using um, collective organizing and yeah. people power as leverage on political pressure points and pressuring your institutions and pressuring your societies to do more than pay lip service. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And like you had mentioned, as, as we were talking before this episode, Valerie, um, it, it seems like local action is just by far kind of where it's at. Um, you know, you're working in Albuquerque. Uh, here we are in Portland. There's a lot of opportunities for local action here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's just kind of work in your community, find everybody around you. Um, and like March for Science is such a special movement it's such a special organization because it brings science to where people live to where people mm-hmm. actually kind of live and breathe and work uh and so uh yeah it's, it's been really great having you on the show um one of the one of the things that i like to close with and i, I learned this from from daniel kwan 
of uh, curiosity and focus is, <laughs> uh, is uh, where can we find you? So uh, Valerie, you're, you're on Twitter. You're, you're yes, Valerie I actually Kino. resisted Twitter forever, um, which is kind of another issue that we could have talked about, <laughs> which is when um, academics are discouraged from, from having kind of like per, these types of accounts. Yes. Um, so yes, I finally got on Twitter, I th like, just like last November. So like the whole March and everything happened and I wasn't even on Twitter <laughs> and now I'm on Twitter. Um, so <laughs> you can find me there, Valerie Aquino. And yeah. <laughs> and Kirsten's also on Twitter. Yes. You're at Archifem. Yes. And I'm, I'm slowly becoming more active. I'm, I'm still learning. I feel like I'm behind my own generation in uh, the social media <laughs> procurement and, and and function but uh i'm getting there so yeah, yeah. come yeah i'm not i'm not so adept at the, <laughs> the twitter game the twitter hashtag games and I'm, I'm <laughs> i need still, to get more involved in exactly i'm still learning the hashtags and how to use them properly but i'm on it at the with the women in archaeology team we all collaborate on that twitter account which is far more active than my personal one um, but definitely different content. So if you're interested in what I say, follow me and WIAA, um, which is a different Twitter handle. I don't have memorized. I'm a women Archies, I believe. Women, yeah, I think it's like women Archies. And I'm like, I know it's kind of close to, to mine. Um, and, uh, It'll be in the show notes either way. Yes, uh, exactly. And also <laughs> check out the Women in Archaeology podcast. Uh, it's great. Uh, you all share some amazing uh perspectives on some very important topics in archaeology mm -hmm. uh and you you dig deeper than than uh, a lot of others do no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much um and i guess i was just gonna leave it with something kind of funky but do well, <laughs> i wanted to say that one of the many things that archaeology has taught me about people is that we write our history and we build our future mm -hmm. i love that very nice Nicely said. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much, Valerie. Uh, we really enjoyed that. Uh, and anytime you want to come back on the show for any of the things you're working on, please reach out. Uh, Thanks it, so yeah. much, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated, and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again, and please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is godigahole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com.